Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's time to look at manufacturing differently. We talk with two organizations that are helping to educate and promote manufacturing and how the industry has changed over the years. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. October has been designated as Manufacturing Month here in Connecticut by Governor Lamont. And whether you know it or not, the state actually manufactures many different things, from high-tech aerospace machinery, aircraft and submarines, to more traditional things like food items, wine and beer. In fact, Connecticut does it all. But the manufacturing industry has suffered for many years with an image problem, ideas of low wages and no career development. The reality, like so many things in life, once we find out more about them, is this simply isn't true. I caught up recently with two men working for different but complementary organisations who are part of a wider team attempting to turn around the fortunes of the manufacturing industry here in the state and secure the next generation of manufacturing employees. We're talking with Jeffrey Martel from the American Job Center. He's the business services representative. And David Allard, who's a senior manager of talent acquisition with EWIB, which stands for the Eastern Connecticut Workforce Investment Board. To both of you gentlemen, thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So we're going to be talking about jobs and in particular a thing called the Manufacturing Pipeline Program, which we'll get onto in a bit. But what I want to do is just basically to get both of you gentlemen just to give us a quick idea for the listeners about your organizations, because I'm sure people will have heard of American Job Centers, although, Jeff, I'm sure you can fill us in a little bit more in a second. But, David, people probably may not have heard about EWIB. So I'm going to pass it over to Jeff first. Tell us, you know, what is the American Job Centers? The Job Centers are a one-stop you know, center for anything job related where people can come in, get services from, you know, doing workshops to resume help and anything geared towards getting a job or a better job. It doesn't have to be they have no job. It can be any any sort of job related service. And, you know, the job centers are all over Connecticut. Yes, we are in uh, Danielson, Willimannock and Montville are the Eastern Connecticut region ones. And you have lots of services here as well and programs. Just tell us a little bit about some of that. There is a lot of services here. You can get help with filing for unemployment. You can do resume workshops, as I was saying. You can do workshops for the manufacturing pipeline that we have. You can come and really do anything that is related to getting a job. And, of course, you've got lots of access with technology because so many jobs these days do demand that you make an application online. And, you know, some people don't always have access to that, do they? Yep. So we have centers that are set up to people that can come in. So there's computers available for people in the public to use. There's assistance that if you need assistance on the computer, somebody will help you on the computer, you know, help you with a phone call, 
help you with any of that technology stuff if you're uncomfortable with. That's great stuff. And we said that David Allard is also with us from uh, eWIP. So David, tell us about the Eastern Connecticut Workforce Investment Board. So eWIP, some may have heard of us, others may have not. We are a federally mandated nonprofit agency that oversees workforce programming in the 41-town eastern region of Connecticut. So basically what that means is we are a we are overseeing a variety of different workforce programs from a variety of different funding sources. Part of those programs are uh, administered through the American Job Center, so we partner with the Department of Labor to oversee the American Job Centers in the region. And we're governed by a private sector majority board of directors, representatives of, of course, the private sector, but also community agencies, organized labor, sit on our board and kind of steer the strategy, work with us to steer the strategy for workforce programming in the region and how we're going to best support the jobs that are available, the employment demand that's available in the region. So specifically today, we're going to be talking about the manufacturing pipeline, which has been a big hot button issue for a couple of years now. Why is it such a big issue, David? The manufacturing demand? Yes. <laughs> well, certainly in Connecticut, the demand for manufacturing, for employment in manufacturing has risen substantially over the past decade and will continue to for, for the next decade. So certainly meeting that demand is the goal of the manufacturing pipeline. How do you do it? Well, first, the question is, are there enough people that are qualified to work in manufacturing? What we found years ago is that the answer was no. There was not enough skilled manufacturing workers to actually perform the jobs that were needed. So So we needed to fill that skills gap, and that's what the manufacturing pipeline was designed to do. And when we talk about manufacturing as well, what are people's attitudes towards manufacturing? Because, I mean, it does have a bit of a history where people think, it's oh, it's dirty, it's grungy. I mean, but it's, it's actually a very different industry, isn't it? Sure. The term that resonates with me is advanced manufacturing. It's commonly used today, and I think it's, it's appropriate because it truly is an advanced industry. If you walk into many of our region's manufacturers today, you'll see fresh paint, you will see clean shops, You'll see people in comfortable attire wearing appropriate safety equipment and working collaboratively. It's truly a very different environment from the stigma that it has carried maybe for the past century where you think dark, dirty, and really not place that would be approachable to a common job seeker. Many of our manufacturers today are appealing to women, appealing to people from diverse backgrounds and communities. And it really has become a, an industry where many people can come to work, work happily, safely, and, and really enjoy their, their career, not only starting at the ground floor as a, as a tradesperson, but advancing to higher levels with competitive salaries. Jeff, I just want to turn to you because you obviously get many different types of people come through the American Job Center. When you mention manufacturing to them, what's their reaction? You know, it's hit or miss. Some people, you do get that, oh, it must be dirty. I don't want to work in manufacturing. You can usually talk to those people and kind of steer them around. i fortunate in my position. I tour some manufacturers, and I see places that drop something on the floor and you could eat off the floor. It really has changed. And so being able to tell people, you know, from my own experience, that it's not what it used to be, and that's a misconception is it's pretty good because then when you start talking about the pathways, like Dave was saying, you know, starting this entry point 
and you can work your way up and you can make a pretty good living and you can make a good career out of a lot of these places. I was going to say, because actually, despite what many people may think, manufacturing jobs actually carry very good pay, don't they? And it's not just that, but it's also the on the job training. I mean, you can get a lot of, I wouldn't even call them fringe benefits. I mean, you get a lot of very good benefits working for manufacturers because of the fact that they have changed so much. Yeah, and they're always bringing in new stuff. So if you're an ambitious person and you, you like to learn, you, know, you can go in as a drill press operator, but when they get a new machine in, you know, they're looking for somebody to train on that. And if you're, that's me, that's me, you know, they're going to put you over there and you're gonna, there's another skill and you're now a more valuable employee. One of the big manufacturers, of course, here in eastern Connecticut is Electric Boat and the submarines that they make. David, talk to us a little bit about Electric Boat. And obviously, you know, they are one of the biggest ones that are looking all the time, of course, for people to come and join them. Because, of course, not only have they got lots of contracts that they have to fulfill, but, of course, the workforce ages, like every organization. So, of course, it's a look for, you know, new, fresh talent. Talk to us a little bit about the Electric Boat situation. Sure. Well, they have a huge job demand, and they have. They've been putting many new employees through the manufacturing pipeline, and we expect them to continue to over the next decade to meet their demand for refreshing the Navy's fleet. Electric Boat has been a huge partner for the manufacturing pipeline, really an anchor employer right from the start with design and planning and continues to kind of sit at the table with the workforce board and, and the system, the workforce system to steer this pipeline forward. But it's not just Electric Boat as the employer. Also, many of their supply chain manufacturers are located in the region and are working collaboratively to say, we need a diverse population of manufacturing employees that have a wide variety of skills. And where we need to start is at the ground level, right? We need to provide really basic work readiness skills, basic manufacturing skills that will help them to kind of carve a path with us as Electric Boat, if that's what, with, I should say, them as Electric Boat, or with another employer in the region ultimately supporting, you know, the common goal, which is, you know, meeting the employment demand that these employers have. So just to go back to your question, hugely involved. They have been influential in designing curriculum and really meeting, helping us to meet employment demand in the region. And it, it continues to be an ongoing partnership. They're looking for thousands of jobs. We are a small state at the end of the day. I think it's what just a couple of million people actually live in Connecticut. Obviously, we're always looking to bring people in from the outside. But of course, we're still dealing with the effects of, of COVID. And of course, every job industry was affected for the last you know, two and a bit years because of that. We're just seeing from fairly recent employment figures that private sector, for instance, here in Connecticut, are at about 91.2% recovery. So they still need to recover. So, you know, the challenge is like multifold, really, because employers are still trying to look for staff to get themselves back up to a certain level. And then, of course, there's this demand for even more staff. So how do you deal with that? And then also with the situation where other parts of the state, the western and central parts of Connecticut, have people like Pratt & Whitney, Sikorsky, also, no doubt, asking and gunning for the same sorts of people to, you know, to help their industries. So it seems like it's quite a juggling act and quite a challenge. Oh, it certainly is. And I, I think it's more than just the manufacturing industry dealing with with this demand for employment. Today has become an environment where it's the job seeker's choice. I mean, there's enough available jobs 
where many job seekers can can choose the type of industry that they want to get into and then potentially grow in. And when we talk about the manufacturing pipeline, we're looking for getting people that were previously unskilled or underskilled to skill up. So that opportunity exists for this, you know, for, for a large population of employees. But there's many other industries that are trying to do the same thing. Healthcare, for example. All these industries are competing for the same from the same talent pool. I think the challenge that employers face and will continue to be kind of a, a priority for them is is their value proposition. What how do they appeal to a larger demographic. A big piece of that demographic is youth, the people that are entering the workforce. We look at employees today, the the available employment market, and you assume it's 18 plus. Well, every year you kind of get that number refreshed with new potential employees leaving an educational system looking for work. Our youth manufacturing pipeline was designed to really fill that void where we're introducing manufacturing opportunities to people coming out of the high schools, the comprehensive high schools in the region, again, hoping to fill that demand. Again, there's only so many employees to choose from and only so many that are interested in manufacturing. How do you make it available to a larger audience? The challenge there, I'm guessing as well, and I'm certainly not disrespecting our educational um, organizations uh, here in Connecticut or anywhere, but I mean, they are driven to get people their qualifications. You know, they want them to succeed go on to college university because that's what helps their scoring system for when they're looking to like you know intake new people who may be coming into the area so how realistic is it when organizations like you are saying to you know to these schools hey we want to come in we want to talk to some of your people you know your your students about working in manufacturing when of course the school's trying to direct them in every other opposite direction and every other industry you know i think the workforce system in eastern connecticut has really grown in the sense of looking at the high schools particularly the comprehensive high schools as partners to the workforce system and their guidance and career staff have really at least from my observations have been become very well versed in the employment and training opportunities that exist outside of higher education outside of just going to college and are working to identify those students who really may not be fit for college and funneling them towards a career pathway and it may not just be manufacturing but manufacturing is a big piece of it to as it stands today we have 18 comprehensive high schools in the region that have partnered um, in some capacity with the youth manufacturing pipeline. Now that may mean that they're actually running a embedded training program whereby a student would participate in 150 hours of classroom instruction during their senior year, evaluate at the end of the year at one of the community colleges and receive a variety of credentials, one being a certificate from the community college, pre-apprenticeship credit, as well as potentially college credits. So what's happening there is you're, you're really targeting the, the student who may be college bound because they're getting college credits. Maybe they are interested in manufacturing, but would like to eventually see themselves taking a route towards engineering. Or maybe they're that student that over the weekend likes to take apart their dirt bike and really belongs more comfortably in an environment where they're working with their hands. They're exposing them to that environment and providing them a path whereby they're graduating, reaching the age of 18, where they can go and work in a manufacturing environment and they're ready to be hired on day one and can start work. In fact, they're being hired before they even, they're being given offers before they even graduate. So it's, it's working. Let's talk a little bit about these community colleges as well, because we've got some great community colleges here in the eastern part of the state, as well as technical, so like 
like schools. Three Rivers Community College and also Ella Grasso Technical School in Groton. So it's opposite sort of ends really of, of Eastern Connecticut. Talk to us a little bit about what they're doing because they're really supporting this and helping to move it along, aren't they? Our key community colleges in, in Eastern Connecticut are QVCC in Danielson and then Three Rivers Community College in Norwich. Three Rivers Community College, from a manufacturing standpoint, has partnered with Grasso Tech to, to outfit a piece of their facility with the Manufacturing Apprenticeship Center. So if you look at it kind of geographically, there is a Advanced Manufacturing Technology Center in the Northeast region in Danielson, Connecticut at Quinnebog Valley Community College. And then there is also a Manufacturing Center at El Grasso Tech in Groton, Connecticut, which is overseen and managed by Three Rivers Community College. So those are the, the two key manufacturing centers here in the region where most of our training is conducted. We also partner with the Westerly Education Center as well through Community College of Rhode Island, and there's some training that is conducted there. But really, Three Rivers and, and QV have been huge partners for the manufacturing pipeline to administer the training programs. They're the key piece of the puzzle when it comes to curriculum and, and meeting that skills gap because Somebody has to teach it. <laughs> and their facilities are, are truly state-of-the-art. They're, they're beautiful. They can host a number of trainings at any given time, and they train in a number of trades as well. And Jeff David was talking about, obviously, youth, because that is the future of many, many industries, is getting the young in and keeping our talent here in Connecticut. Can you add anything to what David's just said about these community colleges? From the youth aspect, yeah. from the kids in school? Yeah. Yeah, so what they're doing, so they're taking the class, like Dave was saying, at their high school, and then they're going and they're taking an assessment at the college. They're meeting teachers and the instructors at the college. They're seeing what it's like. The colleges get to show them and, and kind of guide them. Yeah, you, you've done this entry. You also now, you could take the next step and you can work towards you know, the advanced manufacturing certificate or you can, take, you can move on and move forward with more education in the manufacturing world or you can go to work. So every situation is different. And so it's nice that they're meeting the key players and talking with people that have seen the others going through it. And they can talk about the others' experiences and what they're seeing, you know, where they're going and what those other, the previous students have done. One of the things, of course, is it's not always about just convincing the young people that these are the jobs that they want. It's sometimes convincing their parents, isn't it? Because, again, we go back to the very beginning of the conversation where we were saying that, you know, manufacturing has got a history. So how do you, like, try and get over this sort of this idea that parents might have that, oh, no, you don't want to do manufacturing, dear? So I fortunately don't meet the parents that much, but a lot of it is the manufacturers and what they're doing, you know, and opening up, inviting people in for tours, inviting kids in for tours, but also telling them, you know, bring your parents. And manufacturers are doing that, you know, and they're they're opening their doors so people can see what they're doing inside and change that misconception. So a lot of that, in my opinion, is on like the manufacturers and we can assist them in that, but it's not just a one person changing that perception. It's the whole industry sure. coming together on that. And I'm guessing as well, manufacturers, and I think you said this, David, towards the, the beginning of the interview is, you know, they need to be doing a little bit more as well about not reinventing their industry, but so like making people more aware of how the industry is now. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
you know, that's that's part of what we try to do as a, as a community for workforce system, of course, is to pull our employers in and introduce them in the areas where they're going to be able to share their message if the jobs are there, right? And, and they truly are. <laughs> so when it comes to youth, I think I'll give you an example. Just yesterday, we had a meeting with our cohort of youth manufacturing pipeline schools. And talking point of the employers was a large part of our conversation because many of the schools are wanting to either engage with the employers by having them visit their school to talk about the jobs in demand. And that's being really driven by guidance and career counseling staff. And like we said, talking about how do we get these non-college bound students directly into the workforce, the jobs are available. Let's bring them to them. Let's bring the employers in. So regionally, many of the schools are saying, okay, who are the manufacturers in our region and how do we build relationships with them? And the workforce board is, has been able to help a lot with that. And so has the American Job Centers. In fact, Jeff's role as a job developer for us in, in the region is to build relationships with those employers and draw those connections, whether it be with the schools, with the job seekers as adults. And actually, when, when we talk about our graduates from the youth manufacturing pipeline, these students that come out their senior year and pass the assessment and are looking for the workforce, they get handed right over to Jeff to build those connections. And normally he's, you know, quite a list of, of opportunities available because that demand is so high. Just want to say thank you, Brian, for, for having us. And, you know, certainly I think if there's questions about the manufacturing pipeline, I would strongly encourage anyone to, to contact either EWIB or to visit one of the American Job Centers. There's far more to this than perhaps we could share in 20 minutes, but certainly there's the opportunity and we want to make sure that that's, that's known for the region. So thank you for the opportunity. Not at all. And also, of course, we want people to be proud that something was made in Connecticut as well. That's always important. So Jeffrey Martel from the American Job Center, Eastern Connecticut, and David Allard, Senior Manager of Talent Acquisition for Eastern Connecticut Workforce Investment Board. Thank you both for talking to us and being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. If you're interested in a job in manufacturing and the manufacturing pipeline, then you can find more details and apply online at ewib, that's E-W-I-B dot org forward slash pipeline. Anyone can apply and training is provided at no cost. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Research shows that screening with mammography can detect breast cancer early when it is most treatable. If you're a woman over 40, schedule your annual mammogram today. Women of any age who are at high risk should talk to their doctors about when to start screening. While white women have a slightly higher rate of breast cancer diagnosis, black women are more likely to die from the disease. For more information, visit radiologyinfo.org. Got deer problems? Let us help. With Green Valley Tree LLC's Deer Preventive Spray, guaranteed to keep deer away from your precious plants, bushes, and trees for up to six months. With cold weather on its way, deer will be looking for sources of food. Don't let your front and backyards become their pantry. Call Green Valley Tree today at 860-234-4041 or visit us at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. 
Longtime Connecticut Port Authority critic and Green Party candidate for the 2nd Congressional District of Connecticut, Kevin Blacker, had his first debate with his Republican and Democrat candidates recently. It was Blacker's first debate, as he had previously been denied the opportunity to debate at an event at Eastern Connecticut State University that was hosted by the state's League of Women Voters, as they claimed he didn't meet their debate criteria for a candidate. Blacker said he felt the debate went well, answering questions about income equality, clean energy and abortion rights, and said if people didn't know who he was before, they did now. Yeah, I think I did a good job. I think that they would have a sense of who I am. Uh, whether I changed anyone's mind in this room, I don't know. But, you know, hopefully behind their TV sets or computer screens, somebody will have at least enough interest to find out more about the Green Party and myself. Mike France is the Republican candidate and looking to deny Democrat incumbent Joe Courtney his ninth term in office. France said when it comes to jobs, Connecticut is one of the least business-friendly states in the country. Between regulation and licensing, taxation, it's very difficult to operate a business in this state. You look at the economics, we have a net outflow of people from this state. Why? Because it is so expensive to live here. Some of that is because when you look at the dollars we send to Washington and what comes back, it's about three quarters of a dollar, 75 cents on the dollar comes back. And when you look at that, that's another taxation on the people trying to live. Among other topics discussed was submarine building, and Courtney took the opportunity to defend his position on the amount of submarines being built in the state. We have had challenges where the Obama administration tried to cut a sub in 2013. We reversed that. I worked with my Republican counterparts, Randy Forbes from Hampton Roads, to to reverse that cut. And in 2020, Donald Trump came over with a budget that cut a submarine. Mike Esper came over and testified, and I gave him a hard time. He complained about it, actually, in his recent memoir. And we were able to reverse that cut again on a bipartisan basis. The debate was held at the Guard Arts Theatre in New London and hosted by The Day Newspaper and WFSB News Channel 3. The towns of Waterford and Ledger have signed an agreement formalising the creation of a police special response team after years of training together. Mark Bellastrasi is the chief of Waterford Police and says there is value in the two community police departments working together in this way. We're each responsible for our own manpower costs, but as far as equipment, now that we've signed this interlocal agreement, we can try to seek grant money for training or we can combine resources for specialized equipment. So to date, we've kind of purchased our own equipment. We have done our own training, although we train together. We've had to pay for it out of our operating budgets. So this allows us to look in different areas and share cost, and ultimately it'll best equip the team and prepare them. Balistrasi says although there are some similarities to a police SWAT team, the SRT's role is different. The SRT team has a completely different approach. If the situation warrants it, they slow down. They have negotiators on, on the team, so they try to slow down and communicate with whoever that they're dealing with at that time, if the situation allows. They do have the abilities and the training to act as a SWAT team, but their primary focus is de-escalation and peaceful resolution. The special response team is made up of around nine officers from each town's police department and their role is to respond to calls which can be particularly dangerous to the public and challenging for the police, like an active school shooter scenario. 
A new 64-home mixed-income housing project in the city of New London broke ground recently. The multi-million dollar project will be built in two phases and will provide housing for people to lease as well as provide specific homes for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and different income levels. Julie Savin is the president and CEO of Eastern Connecticut Housing Opportunities, who head the housing project, and said it's time for the stigma-inducing tag of affordable housing to go. The low-income and affordable housing initiatives are a part of this country's past. And while the terminology may be just words to many, it's a past that consists of countless wrongs in the production of housing, specifically housing to individuals and families with limited housing choice and opportunities. Salmon said the housing project is affordable housing for all and that it was time to stop using people's race and economic status to limit where they can live. Connecticut has a shortage of affordable homes and the COVID pandemic has driven house prices to a point that many are no longer able to afford to get their first step on the property ladder. Project Oceanology, a non-profit education and research facility dedicated to nurturing student and public interest for marine sciences, turns 50 this year. Based at Avery Point in Groton, the project provides more than 20,000 students and adults annually the opportunity to get hands-on experience learning about Long Island Sound and the wider marine environment. Dr. Howard Mickey Weiss founded Project Oceanology back in 1972 and said he didn't know back then if it would last more than four years due to the funding that was available and what interest there would be. The local folks, the local schools, the local teachers really stepped to the plate And as the state funding phased out, they did pick it up. And over the years, that's been the story of Project Oceanology. It's a story of cooperation and local support, and that's kept us going. Andrew Ely is the project's executive director and says 50 years on, and their mission remains the same, to help inspire citizen science. Our students and our participants gather and record data that we save and and share. We have a Project Oceanology data set that goes back for our history, and it's fascinating to look back over time and realize that Project Oceanology has been contributing to data on local marine species and on the quality of the environment, and we continue to do so. And I think that's an important contribution to science and to show our students you can be a part of science in that way. Dr. Mickey Weiss, who's now 80 and retired, still teaches at Project Oceanology, and a special 50th anniversary gala was held recently to mark the milestone in the organization's history, as well as to honour Mickey, who started it all those years ago. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.